you have your copy of God's Word, we invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 13. That's on page 9 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. Last week in chapter 12, we saw how after the triumph of faith, uh, the triumph of faith being Abraham's obedience uh, to God's word to leave Ur, to leave Haran, and to go to Canaan. After that, we saw how Moses' faith was tested and how he failed He failed at the first sign of trouble in Canaan, which we understand was a a severe famine. At this sign of trouble, Abram took matters into his own hands and journeyed down to Egypt because of the famine and presumably to find food. Despite Abram's actions, despite his doubts, the Bible still records him as a man of faith. Clearly, clearly, Abram was not perfect, and yet he was known for his faith. Hebrews chapter 11 affirms such a statement. Abram was a mixture of faith and, at times, self-reliance. Which in this way, Abram is a lot like us, isn't he? With great highs of faithful obedience to great lows of doubt and self-reliance. The Bible is not afraid to tell the truth about our spiritual fathers, is it? If we were writing a story about our history, uh, we might leave out some of the the less positive stories, the stories that may not put our family in the best light, uh, stories that that may not uh, cause people to want to be part of our story, and yet God does not do that. In the pages of Scripture, we find out that these spiritual fathers struggled to obey God. They even failed at times to obey God. But we also see that they repented. We also see that they began again. The Scottish preacher George H. Morrison has said, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. A series of new beginnings. Beginnings, And in chapter 13, we see a new beginning for Abram. It's a new start as he re-enters the land to which God had called him. Look at verse 1 again. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negeb. And the Negeb was the, the southern part of, of Canaan. So after this rebuke that we saw in chapter 12, the rebuke from Pharaoh, the godless pagan ruler who rebukes uh, rebukes Abram for lying about who who Sarah was, Sarai, his, his wife, 
After that rebuke, Abram then goes up to Canaan where God had called him to go originally. Look at verses two through four. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, much of this early narrative of Abram actually prefigures something that would occur later in the story of the Israelites. From the sojourn, Abram's sojourn, his journey, his time in Egypt, sound familiar to the, the time that the, the Israelites were spent in Egypt, a conflict with Pharaoh, the exit or exodus from Egypt, and the resources that were received upon leaving Egypt. In these ways, we see this, this foreshadowing of what the people of God would experience even for their own unbelief. But as for Abram, as he re-entered Canaan, he entered or returned to Bethel, or the area of Bethel, between Bethel and Ai. And we saw that back in chapter 12, verse 8. And so what we're seeing is from where he was, he has, he has come, come back, right? A new beginning back to where he had begun at first. Uh, author Kent Hughes says that this was a renewal of spiritual connection with God and the land. In order to, to a new beginning, in order for a restart, Abram went back to the last place that's recorded that he worshiped God. This was between Bethel and Ai, to this, this altar. And we see an altar here, first time mentioned of an altar since leaving Canaan. And here, Abram once again, the last sentence of verse 4, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Uh, to call upon the name of the Lord is to publicly proclaim the name of the Lord, to declare his faith in God. This was exclusive worship of the one true God. That's what Abram was doing when he built these altars and when he calls upon the name of the Lord. Back in chapter 4, after the catastrophe of Cain and Abel, we read in chapter 4, verse 26, after Seth had had children, that the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There was a renewal. There was a return. The Christian life, the victorious Christian life, is a series of new beginnings. And we see this over and over, and we can see it in our own life as well. That our failure is not our end. Your failure is not your end. Your story isn't over. Your story isn't over. Amanda and I were just talking about a situation, in a particular situation with, with some young people, and yet the truth of the matter is their story isn't over. They, they, have, more, they have more to, to live, Lord willing. Their story isn't over, and your story isn't over, and Abram's story wasn't over as he calls upon the name of the Lord. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses this phrase as well. He uses it in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, and he says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will what? Will be saved. So he, he uses this language in reference to, to faith, to believing, to trusting Christ. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How is one saved? We're not just always saved. How are we saved? We're saved by calling upon the name of the Lord, by believing by faith. The, the Philippian jailer asks the Apostle Paul in, in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? He knows he's not saved. How could he get saved? How could he be rescued? And what does Paul say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What does it mean to believe other than to repent and place our faith into Jesus, in Jesus alone? And I wonder this morning if you have called upon the name of the Lord. Abram came back to this place. And he was reminded of his faith. He was reminded of his commitment to the Lord. And I wonder if, if you've ever called upon the name of the Lord. Maybe for the first time you need to today. Maybe some of you have, are, are like Abram who have journeyed down into Egypt. You have, you have left your commitment to the Lord. You're coming back. What would it be to call upon the name of the Lord, to declare your faith in God once again. Well, that is what Abram did. Abram came back into the land. He came back with his wife in all that he had, as well as he came back with Lot. We'll remember that as he left Egypt, he was given uh, a lot of things. Chapter 12 tells us of donkeys and camels and maidservants and, and, and uh, uh, male servants and, and all the rest all these blessings, as he returns into Canaan, he takes all those with him. And for all the blessing, as he returns, after this most recent triumph of faith, comes another trial. He believed God. He failed going to Egypt. Now he's believing God to come back into Canaan. And after this triumph comes another trial. Look at it in verses 5 through 7. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling together in the land. If I were to ask you this morning for a show of hands, and I'm not, if I were, so don't raise your hand, uh, or you'll probably be the only one. Um, if I were to ask this, that a show of hands for, for all those who have had a significant family conflict in their life, I would imagine, so I'm imagining, no hands, right? I'm imagining that there would be more than a few hands raised. I think you might agree with me. Uh, that there would be uh, more than a few hands that would raise to recognize that family conflict is, is part of many of our stories. And if Abraham and Lot were here, they would raise their hands as well. Because that is in fact what we see here in this passage. It's a family conflict. It's a family fight. This is nothing new in the Bible. We saw it first with Cain and Abel, of course. And on it goes. As sin separates, what we find is that relationships are tested 
and then often divided. The specifics here uh, may be different from your story or my story, but the principles are for all of us. The, the common uh, presenting problem in many family conflicts can be money. It can be prosperity. Uh, maybe when a family member dies, there is an estate. There is money to be distri- distributed. There's the selling of, of possessions. Who's going to get what? Which brings about conflict. Far too many families have disagreed, have fought over, have separated over these kind of issues. Many, many people think that what, what we really need in life is more, right? If, if only I had more money, if only I had, had more resources, if only I had more possessions, if only I had more fill, fill, fill in the blank of what, whatever you might think is more. And yet, often it's prosperity that brings about division and separation. Which is, in part, what we see here with Abraham and Lot. The gifts from Pharaoh, back in chapter 12, and the riches of Abram did not unite his family. Prosperity doesn't necessarily bring everyone together. More money doesn't solve all of our problems. Didn't bring all of Abram's family together. It was an aspect of the conflict, of the strife, where that word strife means to, a, a dispute or, or a quarrel, this, this, this fight with, this conflict with Abram and Lot. Basically, we find that there were not enough resources for both Abram's flocks and Lot's flocks. They didn't have enough land, they didn't have enough water, they didn't have enough space in order for them to, to stay together. In addition to that, verse 7 reminds us that Canaan was not an unpopulated place, that it was occupied. There were people living in the promised land. And so not only did Abram, Abram, Abram and Lot have their herds, but surely the people who were living there had theirs as well. So there was, there was a competition for resources such that Lot and Abram could not agree. Their, their herdsmen were, were fighting with one another. So here we see Abram tested again. What would he do this time? Uh, another conflict, uh, another testing, another trial. What would Abram do when trouble came about this time? Uh, would he rely on himself as he did when he was in Canaan the last time? Would he take matters into his own hands and figure out a way? Or would he trust the Lord? Well, the next verses describe Abram's actions. Look at verse, starting in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. For you are For we are kinsmen, we are relatives, we are family. Verse 9, is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will take the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. What do we see here? We see Abraham taking initiative, 
to deal with this situation, but, but not in a selfish way. One writer says that Abram was determined to be a peacemaker here, not a troublemaker. Now, this is, this is a, a new Abram that we are getting a, a glimpse at. Between Abram and Lot, Abram had the, the position of authority. Right? He was older. He was the, the leader of the family. So naturally, he would have had rights. He, he, could have, he could have taken what he wanted. He could have said, I'll take this and you take that. But what Abram does instead, instead of, of pulling rank, instead of a power move, he generously and selflessly deferred to Lot. This was an act of faith, wasn't it? Abram doesn't know what, what Lot's going to do here. He doesn't know what he's going to get stuck with, so to speak. And yet he graciously and selflessly defers. One commentator says that faith resolves strife. Faith resolves strife. And this is an act of faith by Abram. It is a sign of his, his maturity in the faith. And that's what trials of faith are all about. They're all about our maturity. They're all about growing us more and more into the image of Jesus. And God isn't testing us just for kicks. God isn't doing it just to say, well, that's the way life is. Life is kind of hard sometimes. No, God is testing us for our good and his glory. Pastor Alexander McLaren wrote, the less of our energies, the less of our energies are consumed in asserting ourselves and scrambling for our rights and cutting in before other people so as to get the best places for ourselves, the more we shall have to spare for better things. And the more we live in the future and leave God to order our ways, the more shall our souls be wrapped in perfect peace. That's what we see here with Abram. Abraham calls for Lot to separate from him. That's what we see in verse 9. Separate yourself from me. Now we should note here that when God called Abram, he called him to separate himself from his land, from his country, from his kinsmen, from his extended family. Lot would have been part of that. Somehow Lot tags along with Abram. We don't know why. We don't know why he did. We don't know why Abraham allowed it. And yet he did. He tags along with Abram from, from Ur to Haran, from from Haran to Canaan, from Canaan down to Egypt, and now back into Canaan. But the, the time had finally come, and the situation demanded a separation. Another commentator says, better a geographical separation than an escalation of bitterness. Abraham looked at this and thought, it would be better if we separate in order to preserve this relationship. The separation would be the preservation of their relationship. Certainly, conflict can divide, and yet God can even use that, that separation, for his glory. A few years ago, we went through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 15, after a missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas are setting to go back out. And Barnabas wants to bring along a young man named John Mark, who we learned earlier in the book had, had forsaken the, the, the missionary team during the last missionary journey. Paul wants to have nothing of it. 
He doesn't trust that John Mark would, 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 is, will be faithful. And so he says, I'm not, I'm not bringing him. Well, this, this disagreement rose to a dissension, to a sharp disagreement, so much so that Paul and Barnabas split up. This, this great missionary team divides, divides over conflicts. Sometimes that's how God works, that conflict divides. But what we can see is in the division here in, in Acts 15, what happens? Barnabas continues to serve the Lord. Paul continues to serve the Lord. And what do we have? We now have two missionary teams. They each take a different person, and now we've multiplied missionary teams. What once was two guys on a missionary team now has doubled, and we have two teams of two going out to share the gospel. God can redeem even conflict for his glory. Well, after Abram offers Lot first choice, we see what Lot does with it. Look at verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zorah. This was before God, the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, and thus they separated from each other. Lot's decision here reveals a lot about him, doesn't it? As Abraham is, is called a man of faith, we would say clearly that Lot lived by sight. If Abram lived by faith, then Lot lived by sight. It, we see it there in the, in the first part of verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. This reminds us of chapter 3, when Eve looked and saw what? That the fruit was desirous, that it was good. She wanted it. And here, Lot, again, lifts up his eyes and he sees this area of the Jordan Valley, watered like the, the, the garden of the Lord. What is that? That's the Garden of Eden. Like the, the land of Egypt. He had just been to Egypt. He, he is seeing this land and it looks good to him. Warren Wearsby says that Lot was out of Egypt, but Egypt was not out of Lot. So we might take note of the lingering effects here of going to Egypt. Uh, the lingering effects of going outside of God's will. Beware of the effects or the, the lure of the world, the power of worldly things to capture your heart. Jesus says, from, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Lot gave up a place in the promised land for what his eyes could see. He gave up what God had, had promised to Abraham and his family for what his eyes could see. Again, Wearsby writes, the eyes see what the heart loves. The eyes see what the heart loves. So it's a matter of what do we love? James K.A. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, writes this, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. 
The question is, what will you love as ultimate? You can't, you, you are what you love. So what does your heart love? Your eyes, what is, where should we say? The eyes see what the heart loves. So what do you love? What do you love? That's going to tell us a lot about our hearts. It has been said the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart. And that is true for Lot. Lot serves as an example to us of what it looks like when we walk by sight and not by faith. Lot was led by what he could see. What looked good to him. Verse 11 says that Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. This east, this going east or journeying east is uh, mentioned two other times earlier in the book of Genesis. And it's a metaphor, actually. It's, it's, it's geographical, but it's also metaphoric. When Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, they went east of Eden. In chapter 4, Cain was going east. The idea of going east here is going away from God. That's what we're, we're to conclude here as Lot moves to the east, they are separated, and Lot is headed in a very dangerous direction. Look at verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against God. The progression or, or the downward path that Lot would go is recorded for us throughout the rest of the book of, of Genesis. In, in summary, we could see this, this pattern like this. In verse 10, Lot looked toward Sodom. Right? When that says looked, it's, it's, a, it's a longing. It's a coveting. Lot looked at what he wanted. The, 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 the eyes see what the heart loves. And he, he wanted that. So he looked, that's the first step. Second step is that he pitched his tent near Sodom. Now, we're already told that Sodom was, was a wicked place. Now, God hadn't destroyed them yet. We'll, we'll see that in chapter 19. But it's already determined, it's already known that they were wicked people. Thirdly, Lot lived in Sodom. We see that in chapter 14, verse 12. So he, he looked toward Sodom, then he moved near Sodom, then he lived in Sodom. You see the progress here, the progression. Now we might conclude some different things about Lot based on these, this progression. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 9 tell us that, that, that Lot actually was, was a godly man. That Lot actually was a, a follower of God. Now maybe he was distressed by the sinfulness of Sodom. Uh, maybe he had hoped that he might be an influence, but clearly his presence and his activity was not an influence. It certainly was not an influence on, on anyone in the city, not on his wife, nor on his children, as we will see. So he looked towards Sodom. He moved his tent towards Sodom. He lived in Sodom. And finally, he sat in the gateway of Sodom. 
chapter 19, verse 1. Which sitting at the gate meant that he was an elder in the city. And he was a leader in this city. We must remember that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, the Apostle Paul says. And that bad company corrupts good morals. Turn quickly to Psalm chapter 1. That's going to be page 448 in the, the Pew Bible. Psalm chapter 1. Listen to these first two verses. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and day and night. Is that not the exact opposite of what Lot is doing here? (laughs) Lot clearly is not the blessed man. Lot Lot did all the things that that Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 tells us not to do. Walk in the way, or the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of the sinner, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. Lot chose friendship with the world which James tells us means hostility with God, while Abram, the man of faith, is called a friend of God. Lot's choice was what his eyes could see, while Abraham received what God commanded and what God gave. Abraham's eyes were were not on, on this land Abram's eyes, Hebrew tells us, was, was on a far country, a better country, a holy city, a heavenly city. Instead of relying on his own wisdom and in, in taking as Lot did, what we see next is that Abram let God choose for him and he received what he gave. Look at verses 14 and 15. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes And look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. Now, unlike Lot, who lifted up his own eyes, the Lord says to to Abram, lift up your eyes. I'm going to show you what I want you to see. And here he reaffirms his covenant that he had given in chapter 12 of land. And he says to him, don't worry about Lot taking that spot. Whatever you can see from this point is going to be yours and your descendants. I'm reaffirming my covenant with you. I'm reiterating the promise to give you all the land. Not only was he reiterating that promise, but also the promise of a great nation. Look at verses 16 to 17. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that one can, if, if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Here the number of Abram's descendants, his offspring, is illustrated by this phrase, the dust of the earth. So if if someone could number the dust of the earth, that will be equivalent to your offspring. In chapter 15, it's called the the stars in the skies. It's illustrated that way. In chapter 22, it's illustrated as the sand on the seashore. What's happening here? It's saying it's innumerable. 
I'm going to keep my promise to you in greater ways than you can even imagine, in greater ways than anyone could ever even count. I'm going to keep my promise to you. Well, Abraham responds to the promise-keeping God in verse 18. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This location where Abram goes next is south of Bethlehem and would, would serve as the, the center of Abram's movements. And we, hear, we see here in verse 18, again, another altar being built. This is the third altar in chapters 12 and 13 that, that, that had been built by Abram. But in chapter 13, in verse 4, we see that he, he, he builds an altar. And then in chapter 18, we see uh, another altar again. So what, what seems to be happening here is Moses, the writer here, is, is indicating to us that from the first to the last, here in chapter 13, what Abram is doing is worship. The actions of Abram began with worship and they ended with worship. What does that indicate? It indicates that Abram, unlike Lot, passed the tests. Another test of his faith, and this time he passed it. This time we see a clear triumph of, being, of, of walking by faith and not by sight. Here in chapter 13, and throughout the Bible really, there, there are three groups or three kinds of people. And we see it here in this passage. In verse 13, we meet the, the wicked men of Sodom. Uh, those would be called the, the natural man or the unsaved. The, the second kind of person is the carnal person. That is one who is saved yet living for the world. That would be Lot. Uh, the, the final kind of person is the spiritual person. The person devoted to God. This, of course, would be Abram, who is called the friend of God. Well, not only does Genesis 13 talk about those people, not only does the Bible in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and 3 talk about those kind of people. But even in this room this morning, we have those three kind of people. That each one of us fall into one of those categories. We are either here this morning as a natural man, a natural person, unsaved, meaning you have no faith in God at all, no faith in Christ, no desire for God, no hope, no hope of eternal life with God. The future of the unsaved, apart from repentance and faith in Christ, is judgment. Judgment for our sins, eternal condemnation and separation from God forever, which is illustrated by the men of Sodom later in chapter 19, where God judges their wickedness. This is the description of some here this morning, and it is a grave description these are those who have yet to come to Christ. And if you have air in your lungs this morning, there's still time for that to be different. There's still time for you to repent and to believe. There's still time for you to, to move from being a, a someone who, who does not know God to someone who does know God. And the invitation then is to you is to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus commanded it this way, repent and believe the gospel, the good news of what he had come to do, that is to seek and to save the lost. There's hope for the natural in Christ. 
The second group of people is the carnal. These are those who are Christians but are not living for God. Uh, We can know that though they are eternally secure, they will lose eternal reward and the joyful worship in heaven of giving their rewards back to Jesus. The New Testament tells us that that our works will be tried by fire. And what is done for for Christ will be like precious stones that will last. And what is not done for Christ will be burned up in fire, will be worthless, rendered worthless. The carnal, their lives will be burned up as worthless. These will be ashamed at the coming of Jesus as they have lived for themselves and not for Christ. They will have little to nothing to show for themselves. The invitation this morning is to repent. If you find yourself there this morning, you might say, I know I'm a Christian, but I'm not walking with Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't really care to, 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 to hear his word. I'm not, I'm not living in obedience to him. That, that this is the category that you would fall into this morning. And the invitation to you is to repent of your sins. To, to come back, to return. As Abram returned to Canaan, returned to the place where he had worshipped God before, maybe you need to return this morning as well. To abide in Christ, to walk with him in the spirit, to set your eyes not on the things that you can see, but set your eyes on the things that are above. To see God for who he is, to see God as holy, to see yourself as a sinner saved by his grace, to live in light of the love of Christ, to live with eternity in view, and then to be about the work of the master, not about your work, but the work of God himself, not building your own kingdom but helping other people know and follow Jesus. Why? All for the glory of God, for your spiritual growth in conformity into the likeness of Jesus. And finally, there are those here this morning who who are spiritual, who are devoted to God, who who you want to follow God, those who who walk by faith, who, who please God and know the joy of God. The commentator says that true faith always manifests itself in obedience and worship. And that's what we see with Abraham here in chapter 13. Manifesting itself in obedience and worship. But Abraham's not our ultimate example. We're reading about Abraham and we're seeing these these things to to take note of, but he's not our ultimate example. Abraham points us to another, a a greater Abraham, a, a truer and better version of Abraham. Abram's conduct here in chapter 13, his selflessness is only a foreshadowing of the generosity and the selflessness of Christ for us and as our example. And in light then of what Christ has done, then we hear the words of of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. And let each of you look Look not only on your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." It is because of and through Christ that we can 
walk in obedience and faith. The spiritual, the, the devoted to God, walk by faith, not living for themselves, but for the Lord. And they do that all by God's grace. If you want to know, am I walking in faith? What does it mean to walk in faith? It kind of sounds like Christian language. What does it mean? How do I know if I'm walking in faith? Ask yourself just this simple question. Are you obeying God's word and worshiping him and him alone? That's how we know if we're walking in faith. Are we obeying him? Are we worshiping him? Or are we obeying what we want? Are we lifting up our eyes and seeing what we want? Are we worshiping what we want or are we worshiping God and God alone? Those who obey God, those who worship him alone are the true children of God, who walk with God, who have the peace of God and have hope both in this life and in the next. We can know that testing follows triumph. There'll be more tests for Abram as there will be more tests for you and me. So may God help us by his grace and through his son and the spirit in us to walk by faith this week, no matter what comes our way. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? We love you. We're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for what he has done. Not only the saving of our souls, not only the forgiveness of our sins, but enabling us through his spirit to obey and worship you. So may we learn today. Learn today from a bad example like Lot, from a good example like Abram, but mostly let us learn from Jesus who did perfectly what we could not do so that he could then enable us to walk by faith today. For those who have yet to come to know you, we pray that they would repent of their sins and trust you as their Savior. For those who are not currently walking with you but are Christians, we pray that they would recognize their sin and return to you in repentance. For those who are, God, would you encourage their faith today? Would you increase their faith today? That they would continue to walk with you all the days of their life. Testings are yet to come. May you find us faithful through your son, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Oh God, you